APU. American Public University is proud to present Exploring STEM. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we are talking to Dr. Ahmed Nauman, Dean of the School of STEM. And our conversation today is about innovation in STEM. Welcome, Dr. Nauman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot to talk about. I'm excited to talk about innovation in STEM specifically. And um, can you give us a definition of innovation for you in your field and for your school? Yes. Uh, so innovation is is coming up with new ideas about uh, ways of doing things or products. But in the context of the school of STEM, I think it's about how we modify our processes to enhance students' learning and uh, engagement as we go forward. One can also talk about introducing new programs. That would be kind of a product, but primarily it's the ways in which we teach and engage students where we can innovate. That's excellent. And how might you compare innovation in the educational setting versus educational in, say, private business or even in government? So innovation, I would say today, is used everywhere. (laughs) Even, I would say, overused where, like, you go to a LinkedIn profile and they'll say, this person is an innovative thinker. What does that mean? So practically, how is innovation used, like, in the private sector in technology specifically? So first, we have to distinguish between innovation in the creation and design of products, and then in the creation and design of processes, and the processes may be for manufacturing those products, or in the case of education, for delivering education, and in in the case of government, for producing policy and implementing policy and things like that. So in the School of STEM, as I mentioned earlier, we are concerned primarily with process-related innovation, though, of course, one can come up with new innovative program offerings. So degree programs are pretty standard, but then you can have certificates and micro-credentials of various types, badges, and so on and so forth. So those would be sort of product-related innovations. But a lot of what we do is teaching and helping students to learn. So there's a heavy emphasis on process-oriented innovation as to what can we do to make the learning experience Uh, more enjoyable for students as well as to having that learning stick. So it's not that when they leave the school, you take your final exam and yep, you've forgotten all about the course that you took. So to avoid that sort of thing. What do you think is one of the more surprising facts that students realize about innovation? That I think when people think of innovation, they think somebody thinks really hard, (laughs) a light goes off and then poof, you have a new computer, a new process, a new, uh, you know, anything suddenly fully formed. But innovation doesn't work that way. So going on to the next question, what does innovation look like in STEM? And can you provide some examples? Sure. So let me address the implied question you had a little bit earlier. So things rarely sort of pop out of the blue, right? It's that people are registering patterns and pieces of information and they're processing it subconsciously. And then one day something clicks and they see the pattern. They come up with the idea. It's not like that it came from nowhere. It came from all that they had learned previously. So that's when, you know, the eureka moment. But there's also a systematic way of trying to, to innovate or, or come up with new products, which is you try out a whole range of ideas and test them to the extent possible. And some work well and some don't. But at the end, you may come up with a particular product or a design that works really well. And that's the result of a sustained effort to create something. So it's not coming out of the blue, but in this case, it's a conscious process as opposed to the coming out of the blue where it's a subconscious process. 
And that's excellent. It reminds me, of course, and you and I have had many conversations about music, about someone's cumulative experience with music is pretty much everything they've ever studied, ever learned, and ever tried out. And so to me, there's a lot of parallels between technology and technological innovation and say musical innovation, because you're literally trying to figure out what you've, <laughs> the culmination of everybody who's come before you, and then try to do something different. Uh, as you asked earlier uh, in uh, about the definition of innovation, if you take that definition, it's coming up with a new concept or a new way of doing things, right? Then that's sort of irrespective of, is it music? Is it technology or technological product? Uh, is it some kind of educational product? Is it an engineering design? The processes, the thinking processes that one goes through are going to be pretty similar in all of those cases. They're just applied into two different domains of work or experience. Now, can you give me um, an example of a recent innovation or you know, advancement in some sort of product that you think is, is interesting? You know, let the maybe potentially solar, you know, because oftentimes people will look at the just the products around their house and they'll pick up their phone and they're like, well, this is great. But the cumulative <laughs> number of people in the thousands and tens of thousands that had to create the phone you're currently using so easily now is honestly mind boggling. And, and also just the interconnectivity of the world today, because how the U.S. works with every country in the world allows for the facilitation of technological innovation. Correct. So actually, I would use this example of what we are doing right now as innovation and technology, because you and I are located in different cities, and uh, we are using the internet to connect and a lot of software to actually record this podcast. Now, maybe a decade ago, or a little more than that, this would have been difficult to do, but quite the same level of quality. I'm not saying that it would have been impossible, but the convenience where you can plug a mic into your computer and connect to a website and off you go. I, I know there are some settings that to be, to be adjusted, but that's for professional recording. This is something that evolved over the um, course of the last few years. And, and I would submit to you that th this is a way of uh, using the internet and using recording technologies, which normally you would think of as being separate, but now they're coming together to develop this application where you can have conversations with people all over the world and make those recordings and you can do sound and you can do video and, and take care of um, a variety of things without needing to be together in person. Related to music, actually, there's a piece of music that I really liked. And it turns out that all of the musicians were in different cities. One was in Singapore, one was in Lahore and Pakistan, one was somewhere else. And they played together and they produced this beautiful sounding piece. And I was really amazed because I didn't quite know how they took care of the lag between communication devices and so forth. But it was really good. That's the first thing I think about is anytime you have live music over the internet is the lag. Even as we are getting ready for this podcast, there are a few technical things, which, you know, when individually all of our systems were perfect, and then we put them together, and then for some reason there's just some, <laughs> some things that are going on. But especially like you're saying, if there's a musician in the US, in Singapore, in Pakistan, you're basically at the will of the internet access in your area. Even if you're hard connected, there might be something going on in your area. And then the cables that connect us <laughs> world round. 
So I guess when you look at the uh, liner notes on uh, on pieces of music, and sometimes down, down at the bottom there's recorded by a recording engineer and there's a name. So I guess that's <laughs> so the magic in terms of removing the lags and syncing things up and improving the quality of the sound occurs when the recording engineer or sound engineer gets involved with the process. No, I, yeah, I completely agree. I'd ask a question about: Are there any innovative products that have come out recently? So we obviously we're talking about what we're doing here. <laughs> is innovative. Anything else that you can think of that is particularly interesting? Think of the use of drones for commercial purposes. I'm not talking about the military now, which has been you know, going on for a while, but the drones in commercial applications, whether it's for conducting surveys, whether it's for delivering packages, whether it's now so-called security applications and so forth, that's pretty recent. And it's innovative in the sense is that thinking or using a, a small flying machine to do a whole bunch of other things, which you wouldn't have thought about, that's pretty innovative. And now there, and there are things happening in the area of computing technology, such as, I'm not going to refer to artificial intelligence because people have been working on that for a long time, but new ways of computing, such as the use of quantum computing technologies, which are still in their infancy. So those are some of the areas where new ideas and new concepts are being broached and an effort is being made to implement them into actual form. So it's not just an idea, but something concrete that comes out of it. That's wonderful. Now, with all these advances, which are wonderful, typically wonderful, there are sometimes uh, unfortunate downstream impacts of advances. And we talked about ethics, and ethics is extremely important. Why is it important when people are trying to be innovative and they are trying to, say, advance technology to always, always have those ethical implications in their head also? Well, because there are consequences to the actions people take, which and those actions may include coming up with a product or coming up with a policy. Either case, when that happens and a product is built in and, and shipped out or, or a policy is made and implemented, there are consequences to that. And if people haven't thought through the range of possible consequences and the range of subjects who will be affected by those consequences, there's a great danger there. Because, you know, there are unintended consequences, and sometimes um, those are pretty bad. Uh, so as an example, and, you know, we were talking about technologies and phone and, and, and being able to do all of these things together, one of the consequences of this, and I'm not sure whether it's correct to call this unintended or intended, but there is, I would say, a substantial invasion of privacy that occurs as a consequence of using these devices. Information is collected about individuals, which they may not be even aware of that, that it is being collected. So it's, it, it's really invading someone's personal space. What is also happening is that because of the extent to which these things are being done, the concept of privacy is morphing. And I think both in terms of intellectually thinking about what it is, what it means, and what is the extent to which one can be private or keep one's information private, those are things that are still being worked through. As a society, we haven't quite gelled as to where we are going to be. So it, things are changing. It may stabilize in the next decade or two. But uh, it's not there yet. I want to add one other thing um, related to what you were asking just a moment ago, which is that as uh, I forget the name of the individual who made this comment, and maybe more than one individual has done this, but when somebody is developing something, be a product, be it a policy, be it some kind of a technological process, the statement was, if you haven't thought about the ways in which what you are doing can be misused you have failed in your responsibility. 
which is a very different concept now. I mean, usually people go run off and build the things because to use a phrase that was even used by Oppenheimer, because it's technically sweet. Well, it's got to be more than that. You know, what is the consequence of this? Who will be affected? And and this is not only the consequence, consequences in terms of what the effects will be, but the who part is really important because different groups of people are affected differently. So in the, in the areas of surveillance and invasion of privacy is what I would call it, people who are less economically well-off or belong to marginalized populations, they're much more subject to surveillance and the invasion of privacy than people who are in more privileged groups. So even though it's the same technology, the way in which the technology is being uh, used and, and the extent to which you can resist the technology depends on, you know, your context and who you are, which is you know, part of the, the context in which you are situated. And I agree. And there's a lot to unpack there. And just like you said, when you are part of a privileged group, and I'll even say that in the U.S., the U.S. is privileged per se, because at least the government actively supports civil liberties and freedoms. With that said, there are always ways in which those civil liberties and freedoms are taken away to a point here and there. Other countries are very different, where it's kind of assumed that you will just be spied upon. Yeah, that's true to some extent, but things are not quite that compartmentalized. Because, again, as an example, and I'll go back to the use of uh, mobile phones, there are multiple types of surveillance, and, and the intentions behind doing it is different. So there's the so-called security or national security and military applications, the commercial applications. And some people have used the term surveillance for the kind of information that's collected off your iPhone, for instance, and used to market things to you. So the, all of that is occurring in the background. But also because in part of the technology and because borders are porous, many of the technologies that are developed in the advanced countries of the world, including the U.S., are utilized by countries which have less in the way of civil liberties and at times are actually deployed with the help of U.S. citizens because there was a there's a big scandal in the Middle East where this the government of one of those countries was, I think one of the Gulf states was running an intelligence operation using technologies developed by the United States and other countries in the world and and staffed by uh, U.S. citizens, some of whom had worked previously in the U.S. intelligence community. So it, it's not quite that watertight. Oh, and I and I completely agree. That's why. Ethics training, ethics reading, and the philosophical approach to ethics in a practical sense is so important for people. Because just like you said, some people could have worked in intelligence and then they go become a contractor somewhere else. But then as a contractor, what are they doing to the citizens of a different country? And those people in a different country are people just like U.S. citizens. And so... Individuals, and it's so difficult, of course. Um, you know, there's a great conversation that had between the educating of the individual versus the educating of the masses. And we you know when you're educating a bunch of people, you know, like most countries have to ed literally educate thousands, tens of thousands, or millions of people. There's a curriculum that is very standard, very basic. But when you educate individuals, you can really go into depth and really have interesting, thought-provoking conversations about ethics. Versus when you're educating everyone, that kind of gets watered down, unfortunately. And so 
Like most things, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, but there are approaches to it, Bjorn. So for instance, and this is where we can tie it back to the school and the innovation that we are engaging in, in the school of STEM. So for instance, um, you know, in many curricula across the universities, in, in multiple universities, there's one course in ethics. Okay. And in, in, in fact, uh, for uh, engineering programs that receive accreditation from the body which accredits such programs, also science programs and computer science programs, uh, which is called ABET. One of the outcomes that must be met in order to receive accreditation is that students must be made familiar with the issues related to ethics and how to practice ethically and so on and so forth. But again, coming back to how it's done, sometimes the tendency is to say, okay, yeah, we'll include a course on ethics in the curriculum. You don't learn ethics from one course. I mean, even if you get the concepts, you have to see them being applied in various contexts and applying them yourself in that area and understanding the consequences of not engaging in ethical actions. So what we are doing in the School of STEM is one of the things is we introduced a set of courses, one of which is an ethics course, but there are other courses which are really concerned with examining the impact of technology on society and understanding that in historical contexts and understanding how technology and society co-evolve. Some things that are built, uh, you know, affect uh, how people relate to each other. You can see the examples every day here, you know, in terms of the use of social media and how people connect and how often they talk with each other as contrasted with texting somebody or sending a picture and so forth. So in that sense, the technologies that have become available recently are changing society in that sense. But there are also other cases. For instance, as you uh, know, that the research using fetal cells was prohibited in the United States. Well, the technology just adjusted, but it was the society that said, no, we're not going to use this. So there's some co-evolution. It, it moved to other countries and, and different kind of things happen. The, the point I'm making here is, that the, the technology and society are not isolated. They connect. The kind of technologies that are developed are influenced by, the one, in many cases, the funding that they receive, whether that funding is from the government or whether it's through raising uh, uh, venture capital. And similarly, the kind of things um, that, uh, that are taken up and utilized or that are permitted to be developed is affected by the social considerations that are in place. So technology and society tend to co-evolve. Again, I completely agree. The complexity of watching technology evolve, improve, or whatnot can be, for most people, it's very passive, which of course is fine. Most people are not technologically sound. I include myself <laughs> in that. Uh, but at the same time, when you do watch it, it is quite amazing. And you know, one of the very high profile cases over the last few years, of course, is Edward Snowden, talking about privacy, even to the point to where over the last few months, he has been somewhat vindicated by, um, you know, the courts basically calling the um, that program unconstitutional. But at the same time, society, do they want to vindicate him as an individual? And do they want to put the blame on the government, which is easier and harder, <laughs> if that makes sense? So, I mean, that's an interesting case, not just in terms of what a court decides about the, uh, whether the program uh, that he uh, outed, so to speak, was constitutional or not. But, but in terms of his own decision 
to get that information and release it to the public, that's a question of ethics, right? Is this the right thing to do? Is this not the right thing to do? What is the greater context here? Uh, you know, what is the greater benefit to society versus, you know, more limited applications? And that's a tough ethical question. I, I don't know what the right answer is, frankly speaking. I mean, the, you, you know, you can argue it multiple ways and it sort of depends on what value you put on different kinds of things like look, we are all one world together. We shouldn't be spying on each other versus like, no, no, you know, it's a question of security. We have to protect our security of our country and so on and so forth. So depending on your perspective, you can come out with different assessments of what he did. So, you know, it, these are complex questions. They are, you know, and I remember having a conversation with a group of people and we were talking about whistleblowers and the consensus in the group was like, well, of course you would be a whistleblower. If you saw something unethical, of course you would say it. but you have a job. <laughs> Whistleblowers, the names often come out and that might ruin your job. So there's so many complex things that you have, like you said, that individually you have to go through besides just your career or your family that you have to consider. And then for something like, you know, with Edward Snowden, he's been <laughs> exiled in Russia for years and years. Even if you know, what he exposed was a serious concern, which of course it was, and in some context legitimate to expose. He can't come back still. Correct. So that's an interesting, generally an interesting case. But here's the thing, you know, whether you use the term whistleblower, and I was thinking of that, when does one blow the whistle? I mean, how much emphasis do you give or how much weight do you give to saying, no, I will follow the company policy, I'll, uh, you know, give into the chain of command, you know, my superiors know what they're doing superior officers or however it is. And therefore, you know, even though I am kind of uh, sort of not certain this is the right thing to do, maybe they know more than I do. And so in the bigger picture, it's okay. Versus saying, oh, hold on a moment. You know, this is just. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is, doesn't seem right. If the company doesn't want to go and stop this or do something about it, I am going to go tell the public because there's a larger issue that is at stake here. There are more people who are going to be affected. Uh, another example was, for instance, you, may, you recall that just in the last few years, the scandal with Volkswagen, where the, the catalytic uh, conversion process or the information or the data collected from it was distorted simply so that the car could pass the tests in the U.S. Now, some engineer probably did it, but he didn't do or she didn't do it in, in an isolated context. There must have been an environment. Their manager was, no, you've got to get this out in name. We have got to pass this test. You know, this quarter's results are dependent on it. You know, all the executives are expecting you know, X, Y, Z. And those things happen. And so whoever the poor fellow was, the, uh, I don't know. I don't know what they, the thinking they went through. Maybe they said, well, yeah, it's really not a big deal everywhere else in the world. We are, we are shipping cars that are okay. This will only make a tiny difference. And I value my job and, you know, you know, I've got family to feed and so on and so forth. And they did it that way. Touching back you know, to what we were doing within the school of STEM is to address exactly that question is, if you blow the vessel, okay, and their consequences, who is there to back you up? Are there organizations? Are there legal services? Are there is, this, is there somebody who has your back, so to speak, when you blow the whistle? 
So not only do we need to teach students about ethics and how to think about ethics and employ them in making decisions, but also about the consequences of ethics and that if there are negative consequences, where can they get support? And those are absolutely wonderful things to think about because, yes, I think we all think if we see something, we would say something. But just like downstream, what happens if this and that happens? And what are the support? Because, yeah, when the VW example you brought up, I think is perfect because that's an example that, well, nobody died. <laughs> you know, so it seems innocuous, but, you know, the logic might be like, well, everybody cheats a little. But yeah, it, it required some engineer to do it. It required some manager to, to sign off on it. It probably required some VP to look the other way, knowingly look the other way. So yeah, the, the chain of culpability is quite <laughs> long for that. You use the phrase, if you see something, say something. I always find that kind of problematic because I'm sure that, for instance, the people that Snowden worked for would say, no, this is not applicable here. I mean, obviously, we are concerned with security. This and, and, and he's thinking, no, no, this is not right. So who uses the phrase and who asks other people to use that phrase is so dependent on, on the context and the, and the social structures and systems uh, of policy that are in place. Exactly. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Ahmed Dalman, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe higher education is not one size fits all. That's why we offer 200 modern programs that build on your knowledge and fit your schedule. Because we believe universities should adapt to the needs of students, not the other way around. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. We are back with Dr. Amin Naman. That leads us to the next question is, why is it important to have an understanding of the innovation process as a leader in higher education? Well, uh, you know, earlier I said that uh, our interest is in enabling students to learn and to relate it to some of the things that you were talking about. How will society improve, right? I mean, it's sort of, yeah, some of it is you leave a bunch of people together and they talk and they come up with ideas. But if you want to make potentially to accelerate that process and, and potentially to increase the depth of uh, uh, conversation and thinking and practice that exists, you have to tell students, people, about the complexities uh, and maybe the simplicities, but enable them to be able to take multiple perspectives and to uh, be cognizant or, or aware of a systematic body of knowledge and how that can be used to relate to their daily life. So this is where I would say that the importance of innovation in higher education comes in, which is like, what can we do to make the process of learning and thinking and applying that learning easier, uh, more effective, being able to get to that point where people have developed intellectual maturity and a sufficient uh, base of knowledge more quickly, perhaps, and certainly be able to apply it on a broader scale than they would normally think of themselves. Those are the kind of things where we need to think about what we're doing and how we're doing. And that's where the innovation comes in. So what I was talking about was sort of a big picture, almost grandiose kind of concept. But I'll give you a, a, one uh, more pedestrian example. So often we have students join a degree program and they take a number of classes. Uh, sometimes they take classes in general education. They haven't even taken classes in the major. And then they get to the major 
or maybe they've taken one or two classes in the major and they find, oh man, I, I really don't like this. And you know, what do they do at that point? Uh, so sometimes they drop out and just don't come back. Sometimes they may change majors, but again, they don't necessarily know what to change to because it's the same situation they were in before. So what we have done in the School of STEM is we have started this new course, which will be, uh, the we've introduced it in a few curricula. Eventually, it'll be in all the curricula within the School of STEM, and it's going to be a required first course. It's called Introduction to STEM Disciplines. And what's contained in that course is in all of the disciplinary areas in which we offer degree programs. We give students a sense of the content, what is it, the career possibilities that come about as a consequence of getting a degree in that area. And, and this piece, I think, is pretty important, giving them a sense of how much work it will take to get a degree in this area. Because students, you know, they're smart and they have other considerations. So they make decisions which we can be called about, how much return on investment am I going to get? I mean, suppose I want to get, I mean, I really, I can get a degree in math or in information technology or in business or in engineering, and look, in this program, I'm going to have to spend maybe 20, 25 hours per week. In this other one, uh, I only have to spend 10, and I'll be able to get a salary pretty much similar, right? So what do I want to do? And then it also relates to, I'm really passionate about this area. I understand what what's going to happen, and then make a decision on that basis. So the idea behind this course, Introduction to STEM Disciplines, is Students get to learn about the different disciplinary areas. That is in terms of what is actually done within those disciplines. What is the content? What is the body of knowledge that they deal with? And then also they're exposed to and they learn about what are the career possibilities in that area. And then another thing as I, is to just, hey, give them a taste of just what real work or being a, ma- a major in this particular discipline is going to be like. You know, so, th- so then they can make a better informed choice about, okay, I, do I want to be in this major or that major or the other? And we have built in the process uh, of changing majors, you know, providing the appropriate forms and so on and so forth right within the course and also helping them to lay out their academic plans. So the, the, by the time they finish this course, they will be in a better position to, to decide uh, which major do I want to pursue and what are the steps that I will need take in order to finish up my degree program. And those are excellent. You know, one thing that really stood out is what you said about the amount of work, you know, it takes. And when I think of that, like a degree in math, extremely practical, very, (laughs) you can use it anywhere, really. But at the same time, it takes a lot of focus and energy and very stepwise approach to it. I think some people don't quite realize the amount of work it takes to get through like a math curriculum. But then once they're done with it, trained mathematicians are in high demand. That's right. So it goes back to uh, students have you know, these decisions to make. And sometimes, you know, the students, again, we may think of students as being in the traditional age group, 18 to 24, and then they're adult students. And the situations in which they're in are different. A student in the traditional age group may have, this is not always the case, but in general, they may have more available time and fewer responsibilities. They don't have a family. They don't have children to take care of. They don't have to have a, a, a full-time job in order to be able to support a family. And whereas, uh, you know, a 30, 34-year-old individual may be in a different situation, right? So even though the other individual, the one who's, a, you know, who has to support a family, et cetera, et cetera, 
really loves math and says, there's no way. I've got two kids, you know, three years and, and five years old. I've got to help out with them. I have to, uh, or, or take care of them. I have to have an income that is able to support the kids and my spouse and whatever. And while I love this area, I can't spend that much time each week. That can also be something that comes into the calculation. That, And then there can be other things, you know, simpler things like, okay, if I get a degree in this area, you know, how much am I going to earn? What is going to be my lifetime earnings or whatever it is? So all of those sorts of things come into play. And students do think about that and do make decisions based on that. That's true. I mean, the ROI of a degree is always important. <laughs> At the same time, the one's ability to network is also extremely important. And it's one of those things that you just don't know, you don't, quite learn <laughs> as a younger college student. I'll say younger is um, in their 30s. I think when one gets to that age, you kind of figure things out. But I know for myself, when I was young, in my musical training, I thought, oh, my work will, will speak for itself. And then you realize everybody's talented. That's an interesting point, Bjorn. I, I was listening to a recording of a music program. This is from the uh, the person who put that program together you know passed away a number of years ago but he was so popular in the in the area it was in Cincinnati I was in Cincinnati and I listened to that program when I was in grad school loved it it's a jazz program and he had met everybody but so the 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 program is being rebroadcast because just people loved it so much and in one of the ones that I listened to he made the point about a jazz musician he said you know He's just fantastic in, in his ability. He makes really good music, but he didn't do the kind of work that Miles Davis and others did. So he never attained superstar status because it takes more than just music, right? It, it's what you said, networking and being able to recognize the marketing opportunities and to capitalize on those those sorts of things to be able to get that prominence. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I know with my own students and how I communicate with them is you always have to think of the networking. You always have to constantly talk to people and constantly develop those networks. So you essentially have options. <laughs> and, you know, with COVID, and we've all lived through COVID, and um, a time like this, which of course is currently, you know, it's the first for many people in the generation, I would say people who live in Asia, they've gone through a few pandemics. So maybe they've gone through more than we have. But for those people who have unfortunately lost their jobs, you know, if you haven't been building those networks, you might be in a very, very, very tight situation. It seems like with STEM, you know, with those more specialized degrees, at least that specialized training is more applicable towards jobs that they apply for, if that makes sense. Yeah, but the importance of networking remains, right? Both in terms of learning about job opportunities, which may be opening up, but also in terms of who can refer you to somebody, right? And and say, you know, this is a person who's really good. Have a conversation with this individual. Maybe they'll have a fit. So the ability to get that reference, and I'm not talking about a reference letter here. I'm simply saying, Bjorn says, Ahmed, I know somebody, and also tells that other person, Joe, you know, really should talk to Ahmed because I think he may have what you're looking for. Just that ability to connect, developing that. So, I mean, if I had never talked to you, <laughs> right, or I, I'm very standoffish or just cold or whatever, I don't have the social skills to be able to make that connection with you, you're not likely to introduce me to somebody else, right? So the importance of networking and also of developing the social skills, which is really what part of networking is about, is, you know, how do you talk with other people? How do you engage with other people? How do you make sure that the conversations that you have with them, they find interesting? And I completely agree. And that's, you know, for students in STEM, it's 
equally important because you might in talk about you know innovation you might have something that is innovative but if you can't then go sell your product or your innovative thinking or you as a person with your innovative thinking just like it'll fall flat and as a lifetime introvert it's it's just one of those things you practice yeah <laughs> yeah it's work you know so in summary Networking is very important. Yeah, and you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, people in STEM uh, in general and engineering in particular are stereotyped as, you know, they're standoffish, they're introverts. They, you know, there was a joke like, how do you tell uh, an introverted engineer from an extroverted engineer? And the answer was the extroverted engineer looks at the other engineer's shoes. So they're both looking down at their shoes. They don't, won't look up and, and talk with anybody. In, in fact, in, in the outcomes, again, I'll refer to the accrediting body and the outcomes that they specify, teamwork and communication skills are required outcomes that the programs must be able to demonstrate are met by the students going through those programs. So, uh, so some of the, the concept of communication and the networking will follow from that uh, may also have to make a push, as you pointed out, you know, if you have a great idea and you don't get, you're not able to raise capital to build it, it doesn't do you any good good. So you must be able to know people and make a pitch to them and so on and so forth. Those are important parts of learning in any area, but also, I mean, so regardless of whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, that is a skill that needs to be learned. I agree. And my own perspective on introverts and extroverts is just throw those away. It doesn't matter. Just be yourself. And if you're yourself, you can sell, if you're passionate about what you do, you can sell anything. Yeah. And so, We've had a great conversation today. Uh, is there anything, any, any final words for everybody who's listening? Uh, sure. So often people think about a, a sort of generic college degree as, as something perhaps in, you know, one of the humanities and social sciences, you know, you know, a, a bachelor's degree in psychology is a popular option for lots and lots of students or in business. And I would say to you is, you know, consider bachelor's degree in STEM as a basic college degree, you learn lots of useful things. You learn how to analyze you just like, actually, I'm not saying that you don't do that in other disciplines, critical thinking and close reading skills in English, for instance, are similar to the skills that you would require in analyzing problems in, in the STEM areas. Uh, but so you learn those, you learn some quantitative skills, you learn about the world and you're able to take a perspective where you understand both the physical world and the policy implications of doing things with in it. So I guess what I'm making a pitch for is don't pigeonhole STEM into a sort of, oh, this is a narrow discipline. You, you only have to do that thing in your life if you want to do it. Think of it as a general degree. It's something that enables you to learn about the world and about yourself and teaches you um, uh, useful uh, uh, skills and extends your knowledge base. And I completely agree. Um, getting a degree in STEM is extremely applicable uh, there are, of course, so many jobs out there and only more jobs that are going to exist and jobs that are going to be created that we don't even know about. Right. And I would say it's beyond just the job part of it. Is, is So, for instance, you know, somebody, you know, if you're in an area of, you know, art history, maybe there are not that many jobs about there, but you're passionate about it and you learn something. And, and in fact, there have been studies that show that, that students who got their degrees in the humanities 15, 20 years down the road, they're earning as much as the as the students who got their degrees in in the STEM disciplines, you know, on, on average, right? So if the purpose of going to college is uh, learning how to think and and being able to learning how to learn and continue to do on your own, you know, uh, STEM discipline is as good as any other discipline. And so I would support, I would say, you know, Take it as a general degree without even necessarily saying that there'll be more jobs or a higher salary. Though, of course, those will be there also. For sure. And, act, and absolutely wonderful. 
And so today, uh, we are talking to Dr. Ahmed Nauman, Dean of the School of STEM, and we're talking about innovation in STEM. Thank you, Bjorn. It was a pleasure to be here. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU. American Public University.